I want to start by asking a really, really, really serious question, and that is about your love of waffles. Now, a dear, a near and dear friend of mine, uh, Roberta Glick, told me that you and her traveled to Israel, and instead of like getting falafel or shawarma or like any traditional Israeli food, you wanted waffles. Is that I, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to be wrong in my assessment of this. I am never going to be able to live this down. Hello, all my newish Jewish listeners. Today I'm joined by April Baskin, who is the Vice President of Audacious Hospitality for the Union for Reform Judaism. Instead of doing an intro and outro, I'm actually just going to go get right into it and speak with her. April is a good personal friend of mine uh, and old colleague as well when I used to uh, work for the URJ. Um, April has previously served as the National Director of resources and training at Interfaith Family. She spent 10 years advocating for Jewish diversity, inclusion locally and nationally in a variety of ways, uh, including facilitating LGBTQ educational trainings as a Keshet facilitator, and she wrote a thesis about the experiences and identities of Jewish young adults of color in American Judaism. Uh, And we're going to talk a little more about kind of different forms of advocacy different ways to be an advocate for all these different marginalized groups. Uh, And I'm really excited because uh, April uh, has previously um, been the president of the Jewish Multiracial Network, and we'll get a little bit into what her experience has been like being a Jew of color, uh, advocating for different groups. Uh, She's currently on the leadership team of the Jewish Social Justice Roundtable, and I'm really excited to be speaking with her today. Thank you so much for joining me today, April. It's a pleasure to be here, Jesse. I'm so glad that you invited me to join you for this conversation. So we have a lot to cover today. We're talking about activism. We're talking about intersectionality. We're talking about audacious hospitality, a department that you run in the Union for Reform Judaism. Before we get into all this heavy topics, I want to start by asking a really, really, really serious question, and that is about your love of waffles. Now, a dear, a near and dear friend of mine, uh, Roberta Glick, told me that you and her traveled to Israel, and instead of, like, getting falafel or shawarma or, like, any traditional Israeli food, you wanted waffles? Is that, I, just, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to be wrong in my assessment of this. I am never going to be able to live this down. Roberta, I'm looking at you. I hope your ears are burning right now. And every time someone listens to this podcast. So (laughs) it is a story. I mean, like anything, there's a whole story here. So I get to Israel. It's my first night there. I'd recently, I have a very particular diet. That's what's funny about all of this is like, I'm technically formally supposed to be like a high raw vegan (laughs) <laughs> like I eat mostly raw so and I realized though at some point while I was flying to Israel I was like you know what I'm just gonna let it go for this trip like I'm just navigating a country with little prep time it was a coordinated trip I'm not gonna have a lot of time to seek out the kinds of foods that 
I would want to have, so fine. So at that point, it already kind of lowered my normal condition. And then one of our colleagues and fellow movement leaders, Janice, started going on and on at one point. I mean, maybe that's just how I remember it. Maybe she only mentioned it in passing. But she talked about how amazing these waffles are in Israel. So we ended up going and... They were delicious. Like, and I already, like, I like crepes and different things. Like, I'm not, I haven't, you know, like, my veganism is fairly recent, so I still have a penchant for such foods. And so, well, since I already had this sort of, you know, free pass for myself, like, okay, I'm in Israel, get back to my diet when I get home. They were really great. And so, at various points when I could have been in the apartment relaxing. I went out to find more waffles. You know, it's just, I, I don't know what else to say. They're really good. Falafels, waffles, hamburger buns. <laughs> no. Exactly. <laughs> so, thank you for... Uh, wherever you go, there's always good Jewish food. Wherever you go, there's always good Jewish food, and good Jewish food is always evolving itself, just like we are. Um, That's right. <laughs> so... I did want to talk uh, a little bit now about who you are, about the activism that you have done throughout your life. You have supported so many different causes. You're very much out on the front lines when I think many people look to what the URJ is doing, what the Uniform Judaism is doing in terms of its activism, standing up for uh, people of different groups. You have very much kind of, you know, become the face of this whole, the, the, that part of the movement. And I want to kind of ask you, um, you know, when there are so many things going on in the world that people are going out in support of, whether it's, you know, uh, gun violence prevention, whether it's fighting anti-Semitism, fighting Islamophobia, uh, you know, supporting sexual assault victims, the list goes on and on and on. There's so many really, really important and poignant causes for us to be supportive of, how do you wake up in the morning? How do, how do you wake up and decide what you're going to really put your effort into? Obviously, we want to be able to be supportive of every cause, but like, what is, how do you schedule your time? <laughs> That's an ever-evolving uh, question. For sure. And it continues to evolve as, as I expand my department and as we bring on some additional people, that's, you know, I have more people helping. And as we engage with more people throughout the movement, this is an ongoing um, uh, piece that continues to develop. So I would say a couple things. Um, such an interesting question, by the way, Jesse. <laughs> so... Um, they only get harder from here on out. So I know, I know, I know. So this is really complex. Okay, how do I, how do I decide what to invest in day to day? It's a combination of things. So I'm looking at. So one, there's a baseline for me around what's the work that I need to do to show up ethically, fully as myself, and what are the social justice issues that I personally need to be working toward, whether it's in my own life or on a larger scale. Um, and that connects to issues around being a person of color. I'm, I've been, I've started to invest more time in my identity as a woman. What are the ways in which I often 
unconsciously have accepted messages around inferiority and what do I need to do to counteract to counteract that messaging um, and that dehumanization um, so that I am showing up as powerfully and as effectively as I can as a leader. Um, next for me is what does this moment call for and what are my people ready for? So I'm a multiracial Jewish woman of color. I have a lot of different peoples, um, specifically within a professional context as well as personal. Sort of my key, there are many peoples, but you know, in, in this moment in terms of a professional context, um, part of that is, is my Jewish people. So for me, there's, there's what I do, uh, the work that I need to do in my personal life and my personal activism. And then there's also what's the key work that needs to happen in our community to move forward other work. And I, and I sort of triage my activism and my leadership in different ways around. I may have a big vision, but for me, it's really important in my work to meet people where they are. And if there's no, I think that there is actually a place for certain people to be what a friend of mine, um, Cantor Shira Battalion, refers to as fire prophets. Um, I've chosen not to take a fire prophet model. I've, I've chosen to be a leader and a teacher and to meet people where they are and then customize a strategy that makes sense to move that group forward in a way that makes sense. And I often spend a lot of time, Jesse, thinking about prerequisites. There's certain conversations that I'm interested in our community having, but at times there are pre-conversations, you know, that I might be thinking 10 steps out, but we need to pull back so that we can all move forward collectively. Because the third piece I would say that I'm, I'm also, I've been thinking about recently is for each of us collectively, how we can each decide what are the issues that matter to us and how can we bring in people? Because of how capitalism works in our society, because of a number of different dynamics with the increase in technology, sort of the Robert Putnam piece around bowling alone, there's a lot of isolation and it's really critical in all of our work in our lives, um, it's in my mind, that we make an effort to contradict that isolation and to reach out for people. And that if there's an issue that we want, that we build a network of people around us, because most of this work on, on any number of the issues you named, um, it, it's not a sustainable model to go at it alone and we need to be working with other people to benefit from their thinking. Um, and sort of the, you know, and honoring the Hebruta style of working in partners and, and, and the wisdom, the Judaic wisdom around, um, you know, you need at least two minds working on something because one is just not sufficient um, and to work together in community to move work forward. So to kind of follow that up, we're talking about all these, you know, you need multiple minds, you know, to kind of come together. Sometimes when you have so many minds and so many different projects that you want to be a part of, there can sometimes grow a level of contention in regards to the methodology and supporting different human and civil rights. Mm -hmm. You know, I think really a poignant example of this is, you know, when it comes to the way people talk about Israel, I think, you know, you might have people that really, um, that are interested in, you know, maintaining a strong, uh, you know, when people talk about, you know, what should, what's the best way to defend and support Israel? You know, for some people, it's going to be uh, through um, joining different really strong Zionist organizations. Some people are going to say what's best for Israel security is BDS and supporting a Palestinian state. I think there's so many different ways people can come around supporting different causes. And there can be strange intersections sometimes when you get involved with so many different 
uh, forms of activism. So where can you kind of really start the dialogue when you want to be an activist for one of those causes? We have to navigate the infighting that is going to naturally occur. So one of the many things I love about Judaism is that uh, within the Jewish tradition, there is a clear and revered place held for dissension and disagreement um, and for principled and respectful disagreement. At times, I think that breaks down today in areas where there is significant hurt and trauma in our community. Uh, I think it's, you know, I pay attention in my work of audacious hospitality of noticing in communal and interpersonal and communal conversations around where are the hot spots or where are the spots where we just don't talk about it. And that to me is often, each situation is different, but that's often indicative of places where there is a lot of pain um, uh, or unhealed issues that, that need some extra time and, and facilitation. As we're talking about these different pieces, for me, a key um, message that I would want to convey is that listening is not agreeing, it's not agreement, um, and that we need to build our capacity within our community to um, more effectively broach some of these conversations. So, you know, I know we'll get to this later in the interview around some of the spe more specifics of my work and the nature of my work, one of the significant themes, and we could debate the limits of language. And I think that ling language does have limits, but one of the elements, um, linguistic limitations noted, um, one of the elements of audacious hospitality is inclusion. So for me, part of my work and in my mind is helping our movement, both on individual communities and on a collective level, to get to a place where we can have where we can have some of these conversations and have them more effectively on, on different terms, where there can be room for different voices to be heard. Um, because that's a fundamental Jewish value. And I think for a number of reasons, at times, um, it gets really hard. Um, and I want us to get more effective at holding um, space for those conversations to be had. Because when people think that they can't be heard and their perspective isn't even valued... Um, I think that's when you start to see people step away and, and that's not what we want. Yeah. I think it's really challenging. Um, but I, I think, you know, you're spot on when talking about inclusion. However, I think it's really hard when you are maybe being a supporter of black lives matter, and then they might go and try to include a, they might try to bring in something else into their speech, whether it's, you know, supporting uh, BDS, but you might not personally agree with supporting BDS, but you still want to support Black Lives Matter, but then there's kind of, you have to kind of walk that line. How do you yeah. put your best public face forward when trying to be an activist for a cause that might have, you know, some other internal conflict? They're trying to be inclusive. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of it is, you know, where does inclusion begin? Where does inclusion end? Do you keep do you just keep your cause singular or do you expand it? I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I know it's yeah. not, there's no easy answer. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I do. I do have a number of thoughts on this, and I, and I see more where you, where you were going with that question. I'm happy to speak to that a little bit more. Um, which is for me inclusion, and I'm thinking about this in different ways in this context. So you know, you know, so it may shift over time, but it, based upon what you've said, how I might respond to that is inclusion begins and ends with. Um, for me, I'm really interested in prioritizing uh, people and and relationships, um, and and proximity is important. All of everything that you just talked about, a number of the dynamics you just talked about, Jesse, what's what's happening just below the surface or the context of that question and some of the dynamics that you're naming is the fact that um, we live in a segregated society. So going back to this issue around what do I choose to activate around, you know, what, what do I choose to, to take up activism? What issues do I select? In part, you know, in part, I select... Um, I look for some of the fundamental issues that almost like, you know, to make, I always mix up metaphors and analogies in my, you know, private four-year education, you know, I'm feeling, you know, embarrassed about my, sorry to the Jewish intellectuals. I don't remember if it's a metaphor analogy, but, you know, if you were to take, you know, it's sort of like if you had a stack of mattresses, I'm interested in working on the issues that are more at the bottom of those mattresses that would be pull that out, that opens up, that addresses a number of other outgrowths, other issues that are arising from that. So for me, racism, given um, that is one of the primary dynamics that's affecting, there's all kinds of things out, you know, anti-Semitism and racism that are intertwined, environmental racism, you know, a number of things come out of class. Racism is what holds our class system in place. There are a lot of different dynamics um, that, that come out of that. Anyway, where I was going to go back to your point is that um, for me, proximity is also important. So I'm, I'm a Jewish person of color. And so there's a, there's a distancing, there's a pattern that I notice in the Jewish community around keeping a distance and around, um, misattributing listening to agreement, but we need to be able to have dialogue. If we can't have dialogue and learn that, that, that can't be a starting point. And we have to choose to say that just because I'm listening and giving you a chance to share what you're thinking. So for the purposes of us having a conversation, that doesn't mean we're necessarily in agreement, but we can have that conversation because what you find when you do that, and I have the benefit of knowing this from lived experience is that things are really nuanced when you get up close. You know, there's so many binaries in our society, um, but for the movement for black lives with their platform, there's a variety, there's 60 different, more than 60 different organizations that are members of the movement for black lives and their views on Israel range. They run the gamut and there is sure. a collective agreement within the movement. That's actually a very contentious point. And you have a number of black activists um, who are strong proponents of Israel and you have a number who are quite the opposite. So there's a lot of nuance there. And I think that we just as that it, with any given group, we want to avoid um, oversimplifying the perspective and that we, we need to be able to hold the com complexity and diversity within each community, just as we would want people to do the same thing um, with the Jewish community. And, you know, you were just talking about how you, being a Jew of color, this has affected your kind of outlook on this issue. Um, and actually, you were actually formerly the president of the Jewish Multiracial Network, and so 
Can you just go a little further into what being a multiracial Jew has had on navigating these complex conversations? Absolutely. It's, it's, um, it's had a huge difference. You know, in college, I wrote a thesis about the experiences and identities of Jewish and adults of color and American Judaism. And in, um, so I come to, you know, I, I found both in my findings that validated my own, um, both contradicted and validated my own lived experience in different ways. One of the ways that it validated it was um, seeing that it wasn't just my personal experience, but that collectively for a number of Jews of color, um, since we're um, often, we're a person of color and we're Jewish and we're not always, but at, at times often multiracial as well. So there's also a lot of multidimensional um, uh, dynamics there is that um, I have a lot of, we, a number of us have a lot of cultural capital when it comes to these conversations. And it's literally like if, if, if each person views the world through a set of glasses that are basically kind of, you know, the, the, um, social worker, Brene Brown, social worker and author Brene Brown talks about how it's like, as if we had, um, goggles that were soldered onto our face faces with Jews of color, around these issues, it's like our lens are literally wider. So where some people may have horse blinders, we literally have access to different communities and both from our own lived experience as well as interacting with a number of communities firsthand. And so we bring to any conversation around these things a much wider view. And consistently, I recently attended an event for Jews of color, a workshop for Jews of color, um, and one of the takeaways from our collective conversation was that there's also um, a greater, often a greater capacity for compassion because we're intimate with more communities and we, we see the humanity in each group and also see their limitations, but also have patience around that. Um, so, so having that wider perspective of being multiracial and Jewish just literally gives me access to anytime there's a conflict there's much less speculation. I have lived experience around the kinds of conversations people are having at their dinner table, in their houses of worship, whereas for a number of other people, particularly because of our history and modern day reality of segregation, a lot of people don't have um, a lot of uh, exposure or experience um, working across and living, you know, experiencing the cultures and identities of people across lines of difference. And so that you know, I have a whole, I have a much bigger tool set and 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 linguistic and code switching, all kinds of abilities and 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 knowledge sources that I can pull from to connect with a, a wide array of different people. Thank you. I want to make sure that I give you time also now to talk about this audacious hospitality program that you are running <laughs> uh, here at the URJ and. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the term was started by Rabbi Rick Jacobs back in 2013. Is that correct. Right? Yes, correct. Yes. Uh, and so you have you are the first person to come on as the VP of Audacious Hospitality, and that term in itself is just so many things come to mind when you hear those two words, Audacious Hospitality. Can you just talk about what that means in? this context, in your context, and how 
the department has evolved and what some of the programs are? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I live and breathe this work. I feel so fortunate to be able to work on issues um, and, and subjects that are uh, part of my life's work. Um, and so I first heard about um, audacious hospitality in early 2015 when the URJ was looking to fill this position. And in the job description, it included part of the quote from one of Rick's, from one of Rabbi Jacob's biennial speeches, where he first announced this concept and value of audacious hospitality. Um, because I remember when I first got the, when I was first contacted, I, I thought I was like, I was confused about, about the name. Um, so I can appreciate when people have different perspectives on it. Um, but then I read some of, they included in the job description, some of Rabbi Jacob's speech, um, and it brought tears to my eyes. <laughs> um, I hadn't heard a leader, a Jewish communal leader of his stature, speak so eloquently and comprehensively about naming that there are more people who are outside than who are in, um, and that it's incumbent upon us as a movement to not blame or shame those individuals, but rather to say, perhaps they're uninspired. And what can we on the inside collectively do to make more room? Um, and, and then he listed out a variety of groups that included a variety of different kinds of, of diversity and identity and ability difference, and also um, listed out generational cohorts and said that all of these groups have something to teach us. Um, and so I was really compelled by that. And I felt like, especially, you know, you, you know, you noted that I'm a former president of the Jewish multiracial network. And as I read the job description, I, I just had this image in my mind as if there were some theoretical and angelic divine being who was like, let's take April's resume <laughs> and then craft a job description. <laughs> you know, like it was that aligned with, with, my vision for the world, for my vision for the Jewish people. I'm here because um, I am deeply passionate about social justice um, and why be here as opposed to doing secular social justice work. I'm here because I think that Jews have not an exclusive, but a uniquely valuable and important role to play in making the, this world a better place and fostering a world of wholeness, justice, and compassion. So... Sorry if I'm being long-winded here. No, and I'll actually, you know, jump on that. You said that you were, that this kind of job description kind of came to you. However, you have started a major uh, program in your role, this Juvenation Fellowship. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes. Yes, you did. Okay, so the Juvenation uh, Initiative, uh, you know, it provides a lot of insight into Jewish intersectionality, there's a whole bunch of different projects. You're working with a wide group of fellows who are all doing different projects. Yes. What, what was the idea behind this fellowship? What is it? Any highlights of it so far in its first year? Great. So the fellowship seed funding came from the Avenues to Jewish Engagement for Intermarried Couples and Families Matching Grant Initiative in honor of the 2015 Genesis Prize Laureate Michael Douglas, interestingly. 
So we've taken an intersectional approach, but the seed funding and one of the basic premises of the fellowship or goals or objectives is to help really promote and advance inclusion of people from interfaith families. And at its core and throughout the work we've been doing within the fellowship, supporting, normalizing, and celebrating diverse interfaith couples and families is central. Um, but as a Jewish woman of color, I also bring a more complex, multi-layered lens to the work. Um, Juvenation is a leadership fellowship and project incubator, as you alluded to, created for the purpose of elevating and advancing the inclusion of Jews from interfaith couples and families within Jewish life through an intersectional lens. Um, we decided initially to not foreground interfaith inclusion, quote unquote, in the program because we didn't want people to feel like their project had to be explicitly about interfaith inclusion per se. And I would say that one of the core, one of the many goals we have of this fellowship is um, I believe that there is a good amount of work that we need to do within our community, but I also think that collectively we have um, most of what we need to be the kind of community we need to be. And so I need to call on and, and leverage and engage the talent and brilliance that we already have. I don't think that our advancement or liberation is something that can be outsourced. I think it's something that needs to come from us internally. And so one of the goals of Juvenation was to identify leaders who are passionate about um, engaging people in some of what the best of Judaism has to offer and also encouraging people in our movement and our broader Jewish community to rise to the challenge of continuing to strive to be better each and every day so that we can include more people. Um, because to speak to your earlier question about, you know, so how has audacious hospitality evolved? Um, you know, we've come to articulate its goals primarily as um, helping our movement more effectively welcome all who come through our doors or who are seeking um, meaningful Jewish experiences. And to, if we were to think of our community as existing within the proverbial, proverbial biblical tent of, of pushing out the tent poles further, of making, literally making more room for people. And then, you know, if we wanted to get into the technicality of it, taking some time to look around and reassess what are the things we want to keep the same in here, what's either new furniture, new music, new food, different things that we need to do to account for the diversity that is the reality and future of modern Jewish life. Awesome. And can you also share a little bit about what some of those networks that you are intentionally reaching out to are? I know you have some other programs within Audacious Hospitality in the department. Can you talk about some of those? Oh, well, before you forget, so... Oh, I'm going to plug at the end. I'm going to plug, oh, okay. you know, We're more about the fellowship at okay. the end. Splendid. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, great. So, 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 so keep listening. <laughs> so you said, so basically, like, what are some of the other programs that we're doing? Some of the other programs. I know you have... And networks, you I, said. I know you have some networks um, working with transgender communities, working with, um, uh, working with, you have a whole, you have a whole toolkit for Audacious Hospitality, yeah. you have a disability center, mm -hmm. some of those other additional programs that kind of go in tangent with your, uh, Juvenation Fellowship. Great, great. So 
we have a lot going on here. <laughs> and, you know, it's an ongoing conversation with my team around what we're choosing to focus on. Right now, we're covering the waterfront through a number of different strategies and engaging a number of different networks in different ways. Going back to this theme around me wanting to meet people where they are and engage people in ways that are meaningful to them. So for congregations and in general, so one of my first goals when I came into this department was to, to into um, this organization uh, leading this priority of audacious hospitality was we need a toolkit. We need a set of resources um, that explains what audacious hospitality is. It is a dynamic, vibrant, engaging term that can mean a lot of different things to different people. And if we're starting a new area, we need to have a sense of what our guiding principles are and some um, best practices and principles in particular that uh, people can use as a roadmap for how to engage in this work. So earlier this year, we launched an Audacious Hospitality Toolkit. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be releasing some additional resource supplements around Jewish racial and ethnic diversity, um, specifically Jews of color and LGBTQ Jews. And we're in the process of also working on a number of updated materials for interfaith couples. You know, the Religious Action Center, you know, our tikkun olam priority at the URJ and every other priority has the benefit of having existed for a number of years and having a body of work that one, a lot of people just know of, but if they don't know of, they can refer to like the Religious Action Center's um, resolutions. And so the goal behind producing some of these materials is to provide a basis within a Jewish, within an expressly Jewish context that brings a nuanced and um, yet approachable uh, set lens to the complex questions of today around intersectionality. How does that apply within the Jewish community? How can congregations and summer camps um, leverage that, engage that, and support our members who are navigating these questions? So that was the basis. And then, as you mentioned, there's a variety of other work we're doing in different areas that I've really done some custom tailoring depending upon what the issue is, where our movement is with it. Some things I look to provide resources because I think our congregations are ready and have the resource because of the educators and clergy and staff and lay leaders. If we just create materials, we just distribute them. And then there are things like Jews of color or certain issues that are harder and where there might not be as much resource. So it makes sense to provide something on the North American scale and then build out from there. Similar for transgender inclusion. We did an active learning network around transgender inclusion last year. We'll likely offer a broader LGBTQ active learning network in the following year. So pardon me, there's a, there's a, you know, I would recommend that people visit our website at urj.org slash audacious hospitality. There's a variety of different programs. One last thing that I would, or potentially last thing, I know we only have so much time, but um, there's a lot of that we do that I'm really excited about. One of those pieces is recently early or this year in the late spring, we launched in partnership with the URJ's youth department, we launched um, the URJ Keshet Youth Leadership Project um, in which we have, uh, I believe, 12 or 14 of our summer camps and two other North American youth programs participating in a year-long institutional change process around LGBTQ inclusion that we kicked off with a leadership summit and a, a day-long professional development and leadership uh, training 
summit and and now all of these camps and programs are working directly with a coach that Keshet, our organizational partner, um, uh, is providing to to reach out to all of our um, youth programs to better equip us to be able to engage with all of the uh, gender and sexual diversity that our young people have. And I want to kind of give you a chance at the very end to talk a little bit as well about the Juvenation Fellowship and what the future of that looks like. But I do want to, you know, talk to, you know, just take a step back from that and circle back to our initial conversation about this generation and its activism and kind of best practices. Uh, it would not do me any favor to not mention that today is November 8th, 2017. We have a year ago today, the new administration was voted in. And if there's any silver lining that I think has come out of it is that there has been an increased level of activism and support people on the streets, people standing up for what they believe in. I have never seen in my lifetime a level of activism like this. And at least it gives me some solace knowing that there are people out there who really, really care deeply for one another. So as we continue to storm the streets, as we continue to advocate for human rights, for civil rights, for love and compassion, what are the best ways, what are the best practices that you can um, talk about that you've seen, maybe that's come out this past year or just in your experience in life? Ooh, there's so much there. I, so I have, I think that there are a number of, you know, good practices and habits and there are the ones that I specifically subscribe to, which may not work for everyone, but are helpful for me. For me, some key elements um, to highlight what I said earlier are to um, reach for your people, to, to, you know, get a crew, get a gang, get a tribe, get a, a gathering of people you trust, who you can be in relationship with, who can help keep you accountable to your values, to make sure that you're taking care of yourself, that, that you show up together, whether that is in a synagogue boardroom, whether that is a camp, whether that is literally in the streets, whether that is for calling um, our elected officials, you know, activism, um, a, a sort of a hippie indie group that my brother likes who, that he got me into, um, uh, Naco Bear and Medicine for the People. They have, you know, one of their songs, they, they say justice has different hats for different days. And, and I love that. So, you know, I, I think, you know, it's important to be clear that that um, social justice work um, takes on a number of different forms. And so for me specifically to answer, get back to your question that you asked me, um, I think I can speak to that best um, is I find ways of regularly expressing myself. Um, I, I have a number of confidants. Um, I'm in a community of change where we meet on a weekly basis and, and have essentially a support group where we learn best practices around taking care of ourselves and being as rational and as productive as we can in daily life. And I have a regular weekly counselor who I connect with, um, and we take an hour each of giving each other time to process what's hard about what's going on. Um, I bring my full self to this work. And it is honestly exhausting. It's, it's thrilling. It's exhilarating. I wouldn't be doing any other work. 
Um, but that's not to say that just like everyone else, I don't question, is this what I want to be doing? Um, I take a lot of risks. You know, there are a number of parts of my job in, in both the broad idealistic sense and in the day to day, you know, I have no guarantees around whether what I'm doing will work, but it's important enough that I bring my best to that work and take that risk every day. Um, and, and for me to, in order to be able to do that and to bring the fullness of my identity and to contradict messages I receive regularly that say that I should be smaller, that I'm always, that I shouldn't be here, that who do I think I am? Old messaging from teachers who were put, you know, put me in all remedial classes when I was in first and second grade. Like I, I take time um, to connect with people. In the past, I've, I've done that through writing. You know, I think that that can look like in the, in the past, I've done that through dance, <laughs> choreographing dance pieces and finding music that gave me motivation. I still do that. I consider that a part of my informal davening or like kind of morning practice is to listen to music that lifts my spirit that kind of connects to the prayer structure of the traditional prayer. But I, I take music and poems and things that I found over the years, as well as, as well as traditional liturgy and prayers that I find meaningful from my camp experiences and weave that in and look for the things that water my spirit and, and give me hope in the face of darkness. So I do want to just throw it back to you and talk about, about maybe a week ago, you opened up some new applications. I did. We did. That's my Jamaican air horn. for. I'll have to try to add an, an air horn sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yes, so we we are winding down our first juvenation cohort, which, as you mentioned, has been incredibly diverse in age. And we have Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews. We have Jews of color. We have people ranging from their twenties to their sixties. It's really diverse and dynamic, and they're working on all kinds of projects. People should check it out um, on our website to get more information. And now for the second cohort. Having learned a number of lessons for me, again, like I am very, I, my process strategically, especially in this moment and with our organization is to be iterative and to notice what's happening um, in the movement around us, what the needs are. And so this next cohort is going to be a um, Jews of Color leadership cohort. We decided that for the fellowship, it basically functioned in its first iteration as a strategic laboratory for our department to gauge where the interest was, to see if there were any programs that we could help support more formally long-term. We're going to be doing that with a number of the projects. Um, some of them are resources, some of them are programs within synagogues. Um, and for this next cohort, we decided to take this, this wonderful fellowship that we've developed, and I'm more interested in looking at what are issues that we can pick for any given cohort and have a concentrated effort to move that work forward. We've gotten some additional funding um, uh, for the field, um, field building for Jews of color program through a number of foundations, um, including the Leash Tag Foundation, uh, to help support this new cohort in addition to funds remaining from the initial grant. And um, instead of having individual projects, the cohort collectively is going to select three to four projects that they're going to work on. Applications are open now, I believe, if I'm correct. Uh, that the application closes January 5th. Um, people can check on the website, but we're looking for Jews of color, and specifically we're interested in Jews of color who grew up within the Reform 
movement or who now affiliate with the reform movement. So people who are members of reform congregations, who grew up in reform congregations, who went to um, a reform summer camp. You might ask why. Uh, we had a broader net for the first cohort. Um, in, this, in the two years that I've been at the URJ, I grew up within the reform movement. I spent the past 10 years working in all different facets of the Jewish community, mostly working on specific issues, whether it was Jewish LGBTQ inclusion or interfaith families or Jews of color, um, and working across movements. And I sort of returned to the reform movement. And I have been amazed being here two years that it's, I still continue to realize just how big just the, the scale of what our movement is. And so I've decided that in order to have a concentrated, effective impact, I want to pull from, a, to build power um, and build momentum within our movement so that we can be as effective as possible. Um, and, and so that's what we're looking to do. And I am I'm trying to stay calm about it because it's very exciting to me thinking about having worked with Jews of color before, but not in this way. This is the largest movement in Jewish life, choosing to prioritize this. And we're going to be pulling from the best and brightest uh, Jewish leaders of color all throughout North America. And my goals overall are quite lofty. I won't name all of them, but they do include things like helping to shift the culture within our movement. If we have this leadership cohort, we can begin to help Jews better understand that we are a multiracial Jewish people and, and not just hear me or hear other professionals and leaders within our movement talk about Jewish diversity, but actually see it for themselves and see it in action and see the leadership um, that our community already possesses. So application is open now. App, you know, the application is available now. So if you, if anyone who's listening knows of a Jew of color, Please encourage them to apply. If you have questions, we're available. All our contact information is available online. How's, how's that for a pitch? That's a great pitch. That's, okay. <laughs> so it's a home run. I mean, no, I guess you would want to strike them out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure which. We'll go with either. But, you know, I think, you know, just to once again, um, to channel the words the lyrics of the great rabbi Larry Milder, wherever you go, there's always someone Jewish. <laughs> some live in tents and some live in pagodas. And but... some Jews pay rent because the city's not free. <laughs> so I will also be posting um, on our Instagram page at uh, the newish Jewish. If you go there, you can find uh, links to where you can check out the Audacious Hospitality Department Perfect. with the URJ. Um, and I want to once again just really give a huge thank you to you, April, for being here. Yeah, any last thoughts? I think... <laughs> <laughs> you might, but what, the sound editing is going to be great on this one. Yes, yes. <laughs> where viewers, where listeners can't see is that we're doing like a little dance. Are you talking? Am I talking? Are you talking? Am I talking? Um, <laughs> you know, just I think that is for us to remember that there might be occasionally more that we need to learn, um, connections we need to make, but I think we have everything we need um, to achieve what we want to. It's just whether or not we're ready to to have the courage to, to go for it and to put ourselves out there. So, you know, shout out to you for organizing this podcast. I was honored that you asked and thanks to all the people who are listening and are open to saying we have an incredible tradition or this is something I want to check out and 
and um, and you know it has something to bear and contribute to the issues we're navigating. Um, and we get to do it creatively. We don't just have to do it the way it's always been done. Um, we get to build and create a future that makes sense for us and that's tailored for um, the complex and dynamic lives that we lead. I want to once again just give a big thank you to April Baskin for being on this episode of The Newest Jewish, as well as for being such an incredible Jewish activist and really representing the URJ so well. I also want to wrap up by making one small ask of all my listeners. Um, I appreciate so much everyone who's listened to these podcasts uh, and have interacted with me in different ways. If you enjoyed this, please take a moment and give a brief review uh, on my iTunes channel. Feel free to subscribe and do anything else while you're at it. Share it. Um, this has really been a exciting endeavor for me, and I'm looking forward to bringing you more content. I hope you have a fantastic day, and thank you once again for listening to The Newish Jewish.